From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It can be the unexpected downside to enjoying the great outdoors in the Rocky Mountains, especially if you're not used to the elevation. It's actually not very well known exactly what's going wrong that causes people to feel poor when they get up to high altitude. So what do researchers know? And what are they still uncovering when it comes to understanding high altitude sickness? Then we talk with the Colorado Artist Commission to paint the portrait of President Trump for the state capitol. She also painted President Obama's. How does she get beyond politics to paint the person? And the Grand Canyon is celebrating 100 years as a national park. But is it aging well? People are coming to the Grand Canyon trying to turn its beauty into cash. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Altitude sickness is an old menace of mountaineers. It can also plague really anyone who visits the higher elevations of Colorado. Headache, nausea, dizziness can cut a hiking trip short, and ignored or untreated, it can even be fatal. Dr. Andrew Lux is part of a team that researches and maintains the Wilderness Medical Society's practice guidelines on altitude sickness. They recently updated those findings. He joins me from Seattle via Skype. Hi, Andrew. How's it going? Going well. What's happening to the body when people get those classic symptoms? They've got a headache, they're feeling confused or short of breath. It's it's actually not very well known exactly what's going wrong that causes people to feel poor when they get up to high altitude. It's known that when you go up to high altitude, the low oxygen conditions in the environment around you lead to low oxygen conditions in the blood. And that then triggers a whole series of physiologic responses that are designed to help you adapt to these low oxygen conditions. In some cases, people do develop some maladaptive responses, and that's when they actually become sick. And they can develop one of three problems, acute mountain sickness, or AMS for sure, which is by far the most common problem that can affect people at high altitude. High altitude cerebral edema, a swelling of the brain, and in high altitude pulmonary edema, a fluid buildup in the lungs. And although there's lots of theories and research that's been done looking into these various theories about the mechanisms that lead to the development of the symptoms of acute mountain sickness, it's still not very well worked out as to precisely what is going on that causes the various symptoms that people start to suffer from. So it's a little mysterious, but there are actually different kinds of altitude sickness. At what point is altitude illness serious? You know, by far the most common problem that's going to happen to people who get sick at high altitude is that they're going to develop acute mountain sickness, which is the combination of headache plus some gastrointestinal symptoms such as they're feeling nauseous, sick to their stomach, poor appetite, lightheaded or dizzy when they're uh, standing up, really fatigued. That in general, for most people, it's a self-limited problem. If they stay put at the same elevation, it will go away over a period of hours to a couple of days, and it wouldn't be considered a serious illness. I think acute altitude illness is considered serious and potentially life-threatening when one of two things happens. The first is when an individual starts to develop evidence of neurologic dysfunction. And in that case, fluid is starting to build up in the brain, the pressure is starting to increase in the intracranial cavity, and that causes the neurologic system to malfunction. And if not recognized and treated properly, people can become really sick. They can become very sleepy, eventually lapse into a coma, and people have even died as a result of this particular problem. 
And then the other potentially serious problem that can happen at high altitude is what's referred to as high altitude pulmonary edema or HAPE. This is a fluid buildup that occurs in the air sacs of the lungs, making it extremely difficult for you to get enough oxygen from the environment into your bloodstream to support your body's activities. So there can be some really serious long-term health consequences. Let's talk about avoiding altitude illness. What are some of the most important things that people can do to keep from getting sick? By far, the main reason that people get sick is pretty straightforward, is that they go too high too quickly. And by that, I don't mean that they're walking too fast up the trail necessarily. It means that they're not taking enough time to get from their starting point to their ending point. So, for example, if someone planned to travel to and sleep at 15,000 feet in elevation, if they do that ascent over only a two-day period, sleeping at one intermediate camp along the way, they're way more likely to get sick than if an individual spread that ascent over a five, six-day period before eventually arriving at 15,000 feet to sleep. So the single best way to actually prevent altitude illness is for people to slow the rate of ascent. You know, by way of example, you have a lot of people that fly out to Colorado to spend time at the ski resorts or other areas of the mountains that are located at high altitude, either during the winter months or the uh, summer months. Now, if you have someone from the East Coast who flies directly into Denver and then immediately heads off to Aspen, uh, for example, and then climbs up to the top of the gondola and the top of the mountain, that person's way more likely to get sick than an individual who flies into Denver, hangs out in Denver, Boulder, or Colorado Springs for a day or two, then drives up to Aspen, hangs out at Aspen for a day or two before moving up to the higher elevations. And a lot of people in Colorado live at significant elevation. Denver is famously a mile high. How much does living at that level reduce people's risk of altitude sickness when, say, they hike a 14er? Yeah, I think it's definitely the case that someone who lives in Denver and is acclimatized to a mild uh, elevation is probably going to do better overall than someone who lives at sea level if they were both to drive to the trailhead and try to hike up to the top of the same peak in a given day. That being said, the elevation of Denver or Boulder is actually still on the fairly low side. So if an individual tries to go up too high too quickly, even from that elevation, they still stand a pretty good chance of getting ill. The Wilderness Medical Society practice guidelines include research about herbs and over-the-counter meds. Can you tell me more about that research? The main herb that people have looked at is ginkgo biloba. And some studies suggesting that ginkgo is effective when taken as a prophylactic medication for preventing altitude illness and other studies showing that it's no more effective than a uh, sugar pill. So I think the studies have been kind of a little bit all over the map. And as a result, I wouldn't really rely on ginkgo biloba if I needed to take medication in order to prevent uh, altitude illness. And when somebody does get sick, what is the first thing they should do? So if the main way that people are going to get sick when they go to high altitude is they're going to develop acute mountain sickness. And when people develop signs of acute mountain sickness, the most important thing to do is stop ascending. They should stay put, get themselves rehydrated, not because hydration cures acute mountain sickness, but it gets rid of any element of dehydration whose symptoms can look a lot like those seen in patients who have acute mountain sickness. They can take medications like ibuprofen, Tylenol, aspirin to try to treat the headache. And they should just sort of stay put at that elevation and give their, themselves time to see if they uh, get better. Now, if someone starts getting worse despite doing those conservative things, or they show any signs of high altitude cerebral edema or high altitude 
to pulmonary edema, the most important thing for them to do in that situation is to actually start descending to a lower elevation. And importantly, no one should ever really descend on their own. They should always go down accompanied by someone else in case something uh, bad happens along the way. So if there is a hiking group, you shouldn't just send down the one person with altitude sickness. The Wilderness Medical Society has been updating its practice guideline on altitude sickness for years now. How has the medical understanding of this condition evolved into this 2019 update? You know, I'd say that the overall understanding of like the pathophysiology of acute mountain sickness, high altitude cerebral edema, and high altitude pulmonary edema hasn't changed much uh, during the nine years since we originally published the guidelines in 2010. I'd say most of the recent research has focused on whether ibuprofen has a role in the prevention of altitude illness. That's probably the area in which there's been the most new studies that's come out. From a theoretical standpoint, the idea was that although it's not quite known why acute mountain sickness develops, there was some thought that underlying inflammatory responses in the body might be responsible uh, for the development of acute mountain sickness, and ibuprofen being an anti-inflammatory medication might be able to block some of those responses and decrease the risk of uh, AMS. And the advantage of it is that you can buy it over the counter and it's very uh, inexpensive. So there have been a couple of studies over time looking at it, whether it has a role. Some studies suggested it was more effective uh, than a placebo or a sugar pill. Um, so there's been work on that. People have looked at various ways to expose themselves to low oxygen conditions prior to some high altitude trip. So there's been some interest lately in using uh, what are called hypoxic tents or altitude tents uh, in the home. Uh, so people, for example, set up a tent over the bed in which they sleep at night and for about six to eight hours at night they expose themselves to low oxygen conditions when they're sleeping in this tent and the idea is that you kick into motion a lot of these adaptive processes in the body that help one get used to the low oxygen conditions at high altitude. I'd say people are using these tents to a much greater extent than you would think would be warranted based on the state of the research literature at this point but they're definitely out there being used and people are interested in whether or not they play a role. And what does the research bear out? It sounds like it's a little bit inconclusive at this point. So I'd say the, the research on the pre-acclimatization is a little bit all over the map. And some of the studies have showed that these pre-acclimatization strategies can be beneficial. And others have shown that they're not much uh, help. I think the main message that's come out of the studies, to the extent that you can really hang your hat on that research, is that very short exposures that aren't very close to when you want to go to high altitude are not likely to have much benefit. The longer you can expose yourself to hypoxia and the closer those exposures are going to be to your ultimate plan to go up to the top of some mountain somewhere, the more likely you are to benefit from it. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your research. Uh, My pleasure. Dr. Andrew Lux joining me via Skype. He teaches at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He leads the research and maintenance of the Wilderness Medical Society's practice guidelines on altitude sickness. They recently updated those guidelines. (laughs) 
a portrait of President Donald Trump joined those of past presidents in the Colorado Capitol Rotunda Thursday. Pranksters highlighted the absence of a Trump portrait last summer when they hung a portrait of Vladimir Putin in the vacant space. Colorado Senate President Kevin Grantham then started a crowdfunding campaign and raised $11,000 to pay for a portrait of Trump. Sarah Boardman, an artist from Colorado Springs, won the commission. She also painted Colorado's portrait of former President Barack Obama. Welcome, Sarah. Good morning. It's good to be here. As a painter, what decisions go into your portrait that a photographer might not have to worry about? Well, I need to uh, arrange a portrait so that it becomes timeless and not part of the current climate. So I have to try and find uh, the the neutrality in a portrait and make the portrait thoughtful and uh, and appropriate for everyone. That's fascinating. A portrait that is not a part of a climate. And I want to talk about that painting in a moment. But first, I want to know, how did you win this commission? Well, there was a call of artists put out uh, several years ago uh, for the President Obama portrait, and uh, they narrowed it down gradually and finally um, down to four people. And we did Skype interviews with the committee up in Denver who uh, do the selecting. And I won it. And it was a great honor. It was thrilling. And that was for President Obama's portrait. And so now you've also painted the president of Trump as well. Yes. What is your problem? Go ahead. Sorry. No, that that came from um, the fact that I had done President Obama. And uh, I already knew the process and they knew my process. So there was a lot of um, already facts were already established on that. So they knew what I would do and how I would do it. So tell me about that process. How do you paint or do you paint from a photograph? Yes, I have to use photographic references because uh, it takes a long time to do it. And uh, plus, the president isn't going to sit for that length of time. You know, it's (laughs) a busy man. Um, So I select photographs from um, available photographs on sites such as Getty Images, who sell the rights to photographs. Um, for this purpose, and I had to buy the rights for that. And it started with thousands of photographs, um, and I gradually narrowed it down, uh, weeding out the ones with expressions in either direction, happy, sad, or, or whichever, and uh, ended up with a what I thought was a strong and thoughtful, neutral expression. Um, and then I put I selected four photographs and put those to the committee and let them choose which ones they liked. And I gave them the reasons why I had chosen them. So um, they were they were the uh, the last tick mark on the choice. And I think that you paint in classic realism. Can you tell me more about that technique? Yes, it's a very it's a very realistic technique. Um, the the method I use is an old master technique, whereby I do an initial painting in a black and white, what's called a grisaille. Um, it's a black and white and gray, just a, a value painting, just showing the darks and lights. And after that, I put glazes on top of that to gradually build up the colors in various areas. And that gives a luminosity to the painting, which you don't get when you paint a painting straight from in the ala prima technique, which is uh, sort of immediate. And I find that the paint is not as as transparent when that method is used. But the uh, 
the glazing system takes much longer because you have to wait in between glazes in order to not lift up the previous glaze with wet paint. So it does take a long time, and it's very, uh, very time-consuming and very... Um, you have to concentrate a lot. <laughs> How long does it take to complete a portrait? The actual painting process takes three to four months in this case, yes. But th there was a lot of the photo searching at the beginning and uh, research and approvals and things like that. So the, the, the total process took much longer, obviously, because of the, uh, that process at the beginning. Now, I want to go back to what you said about painting a portrait that's outside of the climate. Is it hard to depoliticize the process of painting a president? That's a very interesting question. Um, as you know, I've done President Obama and President Trump, so I've had to, um, you know, deal with that subject with both of them. And um, but but I have learned how to do that. I go to the studio and I paint the essence of a human being, the 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 person, and I try to find the the. Um, the meaning behind that person without any of the political nonsense that goes on around it. So I am looking at the portrait, the skin tones, the eyes, the the expression, um, the shadows, the lights, and, and all those things, and trying to balance everything out on the portrait with the background and the clothes and, and just make it a cohesive whole as a human being and um, put that up on the wall because... Obviously, there are people from all over the country who, who have different views. And this applies to all the presidents up in the Rotunda Gallery in Denver. Uh, some presidents are popular with some people. Some are popular with other people, as we found yesterday at the presentation. And, and that's fine. Everyone has that right. Um, my job is to put the portrait on the wall of the person and allow the viewer to make their own determination of, of where they stand with that person. Um, the fact that they're a president means they're in that gallery. Um, but any of the politics, I, I cannot put that into the painting. That wouldn't be fair on uh, half the country in every case. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. It's been wonderful. Sarah Boardman painted the portrait of Donald, President Donald Trump that hangs in the rotunda of Colorado's Capitol. It was unveiled Thursday. People living near more than a dozen military bases around the country, including Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, cannot drink their water or grow vegetables in their gardens. The reason? Concern about a group of compounds commonly called PFAS chemicals. The chemicals come from firefighting foams used for military training exercises. Communities polluted by chemical runoff want the Pentagon to do more to clean it up. Here's CPR's Southern Colorado reporter, Dan Boyce. Venatucci Farm lies near the southern Colorado town of Fountain. It used to grow organic vegetables and give away free pumpkins on Halloween. Sam Clark works with the foundation that owns the farm. He says that all changed a few years ago. This kind of blindsided us. You know, nobody really understood what the firefighting foam was, what PFAS and PFOA were. Those are toxic chemicals used in all kinds of things. Nonstick cookware, stain-resistant fabrics, and a firefighting foam used regularly at nearby Peterson Air Force Base. That foam ran off, polluting the soil, groundwater, and vegetables. 
Now the farm grows low-priced feedstock for horses. Clark says it's merely one example of the financial burden of PFAS. There are 60,000 stories just like this, and they're happening in the, at the kitchen sink and every fountain and wide field and security home. The foundation and the nearby security water district are suing the Air Force over the chemicals. Water District General Manager Roy Heald says they've had to find a new source of water for their customers. It was actually a, a pretty complicated process. That involved first building a mile-long pipeline to buy water from Colorado Springs and now constructing a whole new treatment facility with a price tag in the millions. There was no blue light special on those costs. The district is suing to recover the costs of the pipeline and other expenses, but the Air Force is paying for the new treatment facility, one of many projects to address the contamination they have authorized at 22 installations nationwide. The Air Force has spent $357 million on this as of June. A lot of money that many living near the site say still is barely touching the full problem. So our water that we have delivered to drink is about 67 to $75 a month. Liz Rosenbaum lives about 30 miles from Peterson Air Force Base. She does not drink from her tap. The PFAS levels found in her water district are just under what the EPA says are hazardous, so the Air Force isn't doing anything here. However, there's disagreement even between government agencies about what concentration of PFAS is safe. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found the levels should be set 7 to 10 times lower. Rosenbaum is not taking any chances. I don't want to die of kidney cancer, <laughs> you know. Jenna Reed is the lead PFAS researcher for the Union of Concerned Scientists, which wants the EPA to consider the CDC's lower safety level, Reed also is critical of the military because she says they limit which chemicals they test for in groundwater and only release results above the EPA threshold, which again, she says may be too high. The Department of Defense has, has misrepresented the scope of this issue in order to avoid having to pay. The Air Force would not grant an interview for this story, but on their PFAS website says protecting human health is our priority. Reed is skeptical. Community members who have been exposed to this chemical and who were not told of its release are being the ones left with the burden of paying for this contamination and paying to find out more about how much is in their water and also to find out how much is in their blood. Those tests can cost upwards of $700. Rosenbaum, the woman who won't drink her tap water, she's organized a coalition that goes after grants to pay for residents' tests. There's absolutely no reason for our communities to go into debt over another water contamination that we didn't cause. Even if they didn't cause it, these residents will be dealing with the effects of this contamination as long as these chemicals remain in the soil, which, as science says, will be essentially forever. In El Paso County, Dan Boyce, CPR News. How many pairs of shoes does it take to hike from one end of the Grand Canyon National Park to the other? Pete McBride and his friend Kevin Fidarko wore through eight pairs and sprained four ankles between the two of them. They're among about three dozen people who have completed the 750-mile hike. It took them 71 days spread over about a year to section hike the Grand Canyon. McBride has made a documentary about the trek and about development in and around the park that he sees as a threat to pristine wilderness. Welcome, Pete. Thank you for having me, Avery. You've seen parts of the Grand Canyon I imagine very few people have. Can 
you describe a place on this trek that's really special to you? Ooh, that is tough. Uh, it is, it's really these areas of um, deep silence. Uh, there's a few spots where I just remember waking up to the sound of bat wings or the distant clatter of sheep hooves and realizing there's this blanket of kind of rich, deep silence that's peppered with these natural sounds that, that stick with me. Have you ever hiked something of this magnitude before? Uh, I have not. What was amazing to me was how wild Grand Canyon National Park really is. What were your days like? How much of the year did you spend in the canyon? So the walk uh, was roughly 750 miles. It's hard to calculate. There's not, um, there's no cell service down there. There's no electricity. Um, initially, the, the hike beat us up. It nearly killed me just in five days. How was I had that? a condition with. I came down with a condition called hyponatremia, which is the opposite of dehydration. My my body salts uh, became too low, which can quickly lead to going unconscious, coma, and then death. And it's the leading cause of death in Grand Canyon, actually. And so I had to leave initially. But once we got our system and our program more dialed, so to speak, uh, we roughly walked, I think it was about 14 to 16 miles a day. Our longest day was 26. Uh, the day-to-day was mostly just walking and trying to read the landscape, figure out how we're going to go find water. You have to be aware of your next water source. If you don't, you have to be able to get back to your last water source, uh, which makes everything complicated. We would follow uh, what we call the natural GPS system, which was sheep poop. If you could find sheep poop, you knew the sheep had gone through that layer of rock. Maybe you're 3,000 feet above the river and on these ledges, and you don't want to get pinched out and have to backtrack. Pinched so out there was a lot would of be re- like a dead end on, the, on a ledge. Yeah, and that happened a couple of times. You come to a point, and you suddenly look down, and it's 2,000 feet below you with nowhere to go, and you have to go seven miles back from where you came. Uh, it's a little deflating in the, in the personality, but I think... Uh, we tried to, you know, keep our forward progress, keep time to appreciate and understand the place and, and for myself to document it. Like you said, this hike was hard, and the film really highlights that. Still can't find water. It's just beating down on us. Sun. Beating down. So you're looking for water under that intense heat. What encouraged you to keep going? So my 12-year-old nephew, when he is my age, could he do a similar walk, was was the concept. And at the rate we're going and the rate we're changing, not only Grand Canyon National Park, but a lot of our wild places, he wouldn't see the same place. It would be a different park. So I wanted to document photographically, um, but also with a film, basically as a record to see where we are. Tell me a little more about the development issues specifically facing the Grand Canyon. Why did you choose to hike it, and why now? Well, I think the Grand Canyon, for one thing, is known around the world. And there are development proposals all around it. There's multiple Native American tribal lands um, that surround the national park, and many of those lands go right into the canyon. And much of the development is happening on those lands. And, of course, the native 
peoples and tribes that have been around Grand Canyon National Park were living in what is the national park uh, historically for many years, thousands of years. Their historical record is all throughout it, and so we need to include their voice. We need to bring them back to the table to be part of the conversation. These these national parks weren't empty when we showed up. We forced a lot of these people out. And tourism has risen steeply in the last five years. The Grand Canyon saw more than six million visitors last year. Helicopters and overflights are a theme in your film. Tell me more about your concerns with those. I think some people feel like those are ways of touring the canyon without making intrusive trails or buildings. Absolutely. And uh, I have nothing against aviation. The interesting thing with helicopters in Grand Canyon is that it's it, 10, 15 years ago, they hardly existed in the western section of the canyon. And, and today there's roughly 400 flights on average coming in below the rim and landing right on the national park boundary. And so 400 flights a day is getting into a point where all you hear, especially when we walked through, was the, the echo of, of turbine engines. The challenge is the national parks can put all the regulations they want in place, but they do not control the sky above it. Um, that's regulated by the FAA. So it sounds like noise is one of your main concerns here. Noise, and if you're on the eastern side of the canyon, there's been a, a billion-dollar development with a tram proposal that's been pushed back by the Navajo tribe, but it's not necessarily going away. Um, that would bring up to 10,000 people a day into the canyon, uh, a little very what's considered a sacred landscape by the Hopi and the Navajo and others. And there's the questions of, of garbage and, and human waste and, and just changing the landscape entirely. Now, some people say that development in the Grand Canyon is about accessibility. You talked with Lamar Whitner in your film. He's a developer from Arizona who proposed a gondola tramway to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It actually did not end up being permitted. There's a little bit of elitism that says, hey, well, you know, the average person shouldn't be able to enjoy the bottom of the canyon. I mean, if I were to hike down to the bottom of the canyon, I'd have to be air vacked out because of my knees and ankles. So, uh, so I'm not worthy uh, of that type of experience. Well, I think the question is, is everyone entitled to see the bottom of the Grand Canyon or is, should everyone be entitled to stand on the, the top of Mount Everest? Again, should we put, you know, staircases or escalators to see the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel because they're too far for people with bad vision? I think the park currently does a very good job of striking a balance for a variety of people. There is a handicapped trail. There is a, a wide range of access that exists already. So I don't think it is a level of elitism. I just think it's people are coming to the Grand Canyon trying to turn its beauty into cash. You also spoke with Grand Canyon National Park rangers and staff. This is Dave Ubaraga, the park's former superintendent. This is the most protected place in the world. And yet, what do you think I spend most of my time doing? Is protecting this place. So on the one hand, it's intuitive. His job is, of course, as a ranger to protect the Grand Canyon. But tell me about his frustration. What are his struggles in protecting it? I think his struggles are a, a bit of an echoing is that there's a tremendous interest uh, for people to come in and, and make financial benefit off this landscape. They see six million people coming to visit it and they want to basically you know, dig into their pockets a little bit and see how they can make some money off them and provide a different type of service. 
You've walked a lot of miles to bring more attention to the Grand Canyon. What would you like to see happen? I would like to see people become aware of how fortunate we are to have such a remarkable landscape and consider it not just an obligatory bucket list check to do as an American, but something that's special. Come in with a little bit of reverence for a place that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. Well, Pete, thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you for having me on. Pete McBride is a filmmaker from Colorado. His film Into the Canyon came out this year. It coincides with the 100th anniversary of the Grand Canyon's designation as a national park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Conservative activists are turning up in coffee shops, fairgrounds, and rodeos across the state this summer. They're trying to put together enough signatures to put a question to voters. Should Governor Jared Polis be recalled from office? CPR's Benta Berkland explains why some Republicans see recalls as their only option right now. Here at the Centennial Gun Club, they have a recall polis petition. Just before you enter the store, a lot of people have been filing in this evening. Have you signed it already? Uh, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, because I work here, so. I'm just extremely disappointed in, in Jared Polis. Kathy Abrams from Englewood cited a new gun law as a main reason to oust him. It would allow courts to temporarily remove firearms from people deemed a danger to themselves or others. She says it violates the Second Amendment and is ripe for abuse. Abrams says she's also unhappy that Democratic lawmakers and polis enacted stricter oil and gas regulations and passed a new law that would tie Colorado's electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote. And he had the legislature behind him, and bam, they just rolled us one after the other after the other. He does anything but bring people together. It's his way or the highway. He's going to keep doing it to us for as long as he can. But getting a recall question on the ballot is a huge uphill climb. It'll take around 630,000 valid signatures. It's part of a larger wave of recalls. Groups are also gathering signatures against two Democratic state senators. And there were brief recall efforts against two House members. Earlier this year, the Republican State Party chair, Congressman Ken Buck, told Republicans they were going to teach Democrats how to spell recall. But says the party isn't driving this. It's not as if a group of people got together in a room and said, OK, you, you, know, you go after Polis and you go after Sullivan and you go after this person. It's not a strategy as much as it is a grassroots effort that shows frustration. But the party ties are hard to miss. The vice chair of the Colorado Republican Party initiated the short-lived recall effort against Representative Tom Sullivan. He was the main sponsor of the new gun law, and his son Alex was killed in the Aurora theater shooting. I didn't start that, and uh, there was nothing that the state party got involved in. I have certainly heard the argument that it's second-guessing the will of the voters after an election. I, at this point, I don't have any idea whether how, how credible that is. 
People across the political spectrum criticized the campaign to recall Sullivan, saying he'd only fulfilled a campaign promise and is up for re-election next year anyway. Mario Nicholas is an attorney and has long been involved in Republican circles. He's now unaffiliated. He thinks all of these efforts have been kind of a mess. There's not any agreement and there's no unity behind what they're doing. And people are pulling in 15 different directions from the same center and going nowhere. And he says these recalls detract from a top GOP goal, holding on to Cory Gardner's U.S. Senate seat. It's, it's drawing away from resources right now. Maybe that could be used to go out and to lay the groundwork for him in 2020. And Nicholas thinks the recalls are energizing the Democratic base. Governor Polis is already using the recall as a catalyst to raise money. This is frankly more energy and activism we would normally see in an odd year. That's Democratic State Party Chair Morgan Carroll. It's also brought some new people who haven't been involved before, but frankly are so disgusted at saying this as just a transparent, abusive process that they're like, I'm getting involved. Carol says recall organizers aren't running very sophisticated operations, but Democrats aren't taking the threat lightly. In 2013, two Democratic state senators were successfully ousted from office. And currently in the state Senate, the party only has a slim advantage. We are not underestimating these because they only need to flip two seats to flip the majority and overthrow basically most of the results of the 2018 election and take an entire chamber back. In the coming weeks, the Secretary of State's office will announce if any of the recalls will go before voters. But it may not be until 2020 before we know which party these Republican recall efforts ultimately strengthen. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. What does Polis think about the recall effort in Colorado? My colleague Ryan Warner asked the governor about it earlier this week. Let's talk about the effort to recall you and at least four other lawmakers in Colorado. Um, None of these efforts has yet reached the ballot. It's interesting, only 19 states even allow statewide recalls. Colorado's process is relatively easy. Do you think the law should be changed to make recalls more difficult? Well, you know, all we can do and all I do is I have to just focus on the big goals that we're trying to do as governor and not let these political sideshows distract me. And you know what? Political games will always be played. I mean, whether it's recalls or not, you know, it's just something you have to tune out as governor and focus on delivering for people. It doesn't sound like you feel very invested in whether the recall process is too easy or not. It's not terribly easy. I mean, they have a very, uh, they have a pretty high threshold of signatures. I think legislators, it's a lower threshold in those districts. Um, there could be interest in bipartisan reform of that process. I mean, I don't think it's healthy for the system that, you know, legislators feel under duress regularly if they haven't taken any, you know, unethical action. I mean, if they're just being recalled over what they said they were going to do in the first place. It seems like we risk entering a cycle of ongoing elections if those were to succeed. Ryan Warner speaking this week with Governor Jared Polis. They also covered a wide range of topics, including changes to health care in Colorado, local versus state control of oil and gas, and how to address behavioral health needs in Colorado. You can read and listen to the entire interview at CPR.org. It may be hard to believe summer is already halfway over. 
but it's not too late to relax and curl up with a good book. Let's revisit the recommendations of two local booksellers. Their picks all have a flavor of Colorado or the West. Joining us is Nicole Magistro, owner of the Bookworm of Edwards. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. And Bethany Strout is the buyer for Tattered Cover Bookstores. Welcome, Bethany. Thank you. Bethany, you have a novel you say is the perfect high-octane read for the summer. Tell us about Recursion by Blake Crouch. Yeah, so Blake Crouch is a Colorado author, and he writes thrillers with a sci-fi twist. So this book is the story of a cop with a tragic past, of course, who's investigating an outbreak of false memory syndrome, where people remember entirely other versions of their lives. This book is a page Turner. It was full of twists that I didn't see coming. And the exploration of how our memories make us was really fascinating. This is like the plane read, the beach read, the camping read. And the book is Recursion by Blake Crouch. Nicole, you have the latest novel by Colorado author Peter Heller. Tell us about The River. Well, Peter Heller has taught me to love many, many things, among them post-apocalyptic fiction, which I didn't typically like before, and fly fishing. In the river, Peter Heller takes us on a terrifyingly beautiful canoe trip, and um, he weaves friendship together with nature writing, adventure, and it's a simple narrative which comes to kind of a heart-pounding uh, climax, and there's paddling on every page. And although this book takes place in southeastern Canada and northeast United States, it has all the flavors that we love here in Colorado. And that's Peter Heller's The River. Um, Nicole, you've also brought us a collection of short stories, Sabrina and Karina. We spoke to the author, Kali Fajardo Anstein, in April about the book, and she talked about her family's strong ties to Denver. Every day of my life, I think about the fact that my great-grandmother's house is, you know, it's in five points. I walk by it. Sometimes I see it. I have a great-great-auntie whose home was on the west side, and sometimes I go down Gallopago Street and I look at that house, too. And I think about how the city's changed so much, but underneath those layers of change, my family has just always been here. This is our heartbeat. This is where we're from. Nicole, what made you like these stories? Well, the voice is so distinct in every story, um, spanning across the entire 20th century and telling the stories of all the Denver neighborhoods, a different Denver than we have today. And um, I think one that is always in gratitude for people um, and for family connection. Um, I just, my heart just was with every single character in every single story of this book. And again, that book is Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Anstein. Bethany, you have another collection of short stories to recommend. It's called The Aerialists. Tell us about it. Yeah, so it's been a bountiful year for Denver debut literary talents. And in addition to Sabrina and Karina, we also have Aerialists by Mark Mayer. And he uses the circus as a jumping off point for um, some dark stories, some heartwarming stories, again, set in Colorado and beyond. Um, just a wonderful talent and one to watch, I think. I know short stories are one that I enjoy so much during the summer. It's that little bit of 
that you can read in the plane on the beach. Nicole, you've brought us a memoir, Deep Creek by Pam Houston. Pam Houston will be a familiar name to some. Tell us about Houston and her new book. Well, um, Pam lives in Creed, and she's owned a ranch there for a quarter of a century. She bought the ranch on really a wing and a prayer from a woman who loved her book, Cowboys Are My Weakness. And um, the mountains, the ranch, um, the life journey that Pam takes to sort of accept mothering from the ranch and really um, coming of age in adulthood, from Mm -hmm. adulthood to midlife. This is a true Western classic. Um, There are sections about wildfire. There are sections about Um, taking care of livestock. There are sections about writing and natural beauty. It's an amazing, redemptive, and empowering book. And we spoke with Pam Houston in March about the book and talked to her about how her animals and how she's given them people names. Jordan and Natasha are Icelandic sheep. Isaac and Simon are mini donkeys. Um, I have chickens. I have Irish wolfhounds. Uh, Well, at the moment, just one. I lost... My William recently, but Olivia, and I'm about to get a new Irish wolfhound named Henry, he needs a home and he's coming to the ranch. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think of my animals as uh, members of the family, so they deserve uh, serious names. The book is Deep Creek by Pam Houston. You both have a few books for young readers. Bethany, tell us about Tree of Dreams for middle schoolers. Yeah, this is the perfect book to hand to your child for summer reading. Set in the fictional Colorado town of Heartbeat Springs and written by Fort Collins author Resaw, this book follows two 12-year-olds on a trip to the Amazon. It deals with friendship, advocating for environmental and indigenous rights, and lots of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) And again, that book is Tree of Dreams. And Bethany, you have another book for kids. This one's a picture book. It's called You Are Home, an Ode to the National Parks by Evan Turk. We also recently interviewed Durango author Kate Sieber about her book for young readers called National Parks USA. Why did you pick You Are Home? I have to say that You Are Home is shaping up to be one of my absolute favorite books of the year. It makes me tear up a little when I read it. Its message is really you are home in our glorious national parks, no matter who you are, where you're from. Um, Evan Turk, the author and illustrator, is from Littleton, I believe, and Rocky Mountain National Park, Mesa Verde, the Great Sand Dunes are all featured in this book, among many others. It's really the perfect book to share with children or to keep on your coffee table and sort of remind you of the next trip you might be taking. And the book is called You Are Home, an Ode to National Parks by Evan Turk. Nicole, last but not least, you've brought a children's book, Being Edie is Hard Today. I love the title. So maybe a chance to relax with kids, say while camping, and read this book over the summer. Tell us about this one. This is a beautiful picture book, and it's a really touching portrayal of an inventive child and her bad day at school. Um, But really, the, the Pencil and watercolor drawings are so finely made, um, and Edie sort of sees herself as different animal characters in the book. It's really a way for children um, to be shown 
in a way that's not like where we have to fix them. And if they have a bad day, we have to make it better. But instead for them to rely on themselves and build their own ways to cope with what comes to them each day. Um, Elizabeth Berglund is the illustrator of this book, and she is a Colorado native and went to see you. Ben Brasheres is the author. So together they create this amazing story of resilience. And that's a children's book called Being Edie is Hard Today. Um, And I wonder, this is a time when electronics are so prevalent. Can you tell me more about how you can get kids to read, especially during the summer? For me, it's curling up um, maybe after a busy day outside and taking time to relax. My seven-year-old son and I love to read at the end of the day together. Um, And I know there are so many great recommendations, but kids really want to connect with characters and see themselves in characters. And there are so many opportunities to do that in books. Mm. I would also say um, I'm a big believer in letting your child read what they want. So if they want to read a graphic novel, if they want to read a book of sports facts, which is my nephew's personal favorite thing to look at, if they want to read a magazine, um, I think all of those things are equally valuable and uh, and will encourage them to find a wider love of reading and books. And I, I wonder if you have recommendations for helping them explore those many different kinds of books. Absolutely. I think nonfiction is a great way to get kids connected, like whether it's sports or science, um, but really like illustrated chapter books are more and more popular. Kids can actually write their own graphic novels. Um, There are so many tools that when you come to the bookstore, you can connect to the various styles of books. Thanks to you both for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Nicole Magistro is owner of The Bookworm of Edwards. Bethany Strout is the buyer for the Tattered Cover Bookstores. They joined us at the beginning of the summer to offer their seasonal reading recommendations. All the books have connections to Colorado or the West. We have a list at CPR.org. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill, and this is CPR News.